This is Shear number four in a ten-part series describing the Makos of Mitzrayim. The fourth Maka is the Maka of Arov, commonly known as wild predatory animals. It's clear that with the advent of Arov, there is an intensification, there is a violence, there's a brutality that hadn't been witnessed before. The first three Makos, they were more than inconveniencing. They were overwhelming, they were handicapping of Egyptian uh, society, of Egyptian economy, of Egyptian uh, day-to-day routine. But people were able to adjust. People were able to dig wells near the Nile and draw water. Um, the frogs didn't bring society to a halt. The Kenim created a debasement of the Egyptians. But uh, very few people evidently lost their lives. Perhaps if the Tzfardamaka were not just frogs, but crocodiles. There were some isolated incidents, but it created terror and, and fear and panic. But with the advent of Arov, the the intensity level, the savagery of the Makos is being ratcheted up. People are actually losing their lives in very, very graphic and violent fashion. And there's so many indicators that this is really a shift from, of course, Rabbi Huda's deciding to group the Makos in three groups of three or three, three, and four, but essentially Maka number four begins the second group, the Tzach Adash B'Achab, so Adash is the Arov. Moshe issues a warning, uh, which he hadn't issued in Kinim, so there's a need for a new warning, because at a very, very simple level, people are going to lose their lives, and it isn't appropriate for people to lose their lives without a prior warning. And that warning occurs near the river, which is the scene of Moshe's confrontations with Pyro, at least in the beginning of the Makos. Meet him by the riverside, where he rises every morning to affirm his monarchy, to perform some religious rite near the banks, or religious uh, ceremony near the banks of the Nile. Interestingly enough, Moshe is told not just to meet Pyro in the morning, but Hashkem Baboker, to arise early. Um, perhaps this is indicative that even the the regal, the royal routine was changing, and that Pyro himself was getting up earlier, maybe practically to avoid Moshe. Other Chazal say he wanted to actually to daven, and Hakadosh Baruch who prevented him from davening because he had already passed the point of bichir chavshis, which is an interesting question unto itself. But it's clear that Mitzrayim is changing. It's clear that the three Makos have had their toll, but it's also clear that Makas Arov will bring something more intense more overwhelming. And it's not just that there's a new warning, and it's not just that Moshe has to arise early to preempt Paro's evasive tactics, but it seems as if the pace itself is accelerating. It's unclear about how much time passed between the earlier warnings and the subsequent makos. Moshe warns Paro about Dam, and at a certain point Dam is is, is implemented. Moshe warns Pyro about Svardea, and when Pyro refuses to listen, Svardea beset the nation. It's unclear, but one thing is clear. Moshe warns Pyro about Arov, and he tells him that if he doesn't heed his call to release the Jewish people, this is Pasuk Yutes, Lemachar Yehaos Hazeh will happen tomorrow. So it's not just an intensification or an augmentation of the Makos, but an acceleration of the pace. Things are starting to move very quickly as the Makos unfold and as redemption becomes 
nearer and nearer. So this is the introduction to Arov, and there are certain distinct changes which occur, unlike any of the three previous makos. Now, Arav on itself, uh, onto itself, it doesn't really need to be defined. It's savage, it's brutal, it's violent, it's predatory, uh, animals raging, wild beasts uh, invading the homes, invading the cities, tearing people from limb to limb. It's not something which requires that much explanation. However, they're not referred to in the Torah as chayos. Or tarfos, tarif would be the Hebrew word for a predatory animal that would just violently kill a human being. They're not referred to it in that fashion. The maka is referred to, and Moshe, of course, introduces this, is the word arov. The word arov means a mixture. Those who have studied for smicha spend a lot of time studying the laws of tarovas. If there's a, a substance of uh, a prohibited food that gets mixed up with the substance of permissible food. What are the ratios that allow the overall mixture to be eaten? What are the ratios that prohibit the entire mixture? It was a mixture here. It was a mixture. It was a gang. It was a motley assortment of beasts. And Chazal fill in the blanks. Um, there's actually a very interesting medrash. According to one position, I think it's Rabbi Nehemiah, it wasn't even beasts. It was a swarm of flies and insects and, and bees and other predatory uh, flies and bugs. And because Rebbe Nechemi is pointing out the sense that it's very, very unnatural for beasts and animals to hunt together. You don't often have a scene. These animals hunt each other. These animals have their own territories, their own, their own predatory uh, regions. It would be very unnatural to see lions and bears and uh, feline predators and cats and leopards and and wolves and gorillas and they they don't really hunt together they hunt each other and they defend their territory and the Torah was stressing that in this case there was a gang so Nehemiah said the, the the predators which normally come in gangs are, are are locusts or bees not really locusts locusts is arbor but let's say bees killer bees. But the simple reading and the classic reading is that they weren't bees, but that they were beasts. But the Medrash continues that they were a gang of different beasts that don't naturally occur. Rabbi Akiva, this is not a minority opinion in the Medrash, Rabbi Akiva says it was actually a combination of land-based predators, land-based wild beasts, and aerial birds. Uh, we don't really have the types of aerial birds that would prey on human beings, but either they acted unnaturally, hawks and falcons and, and, and maybe even vultures, or these could have been the types of predatory birds that we no longer have record of, perhaps archaeologically we know existed. But either way, maybe they were supernatural, but either way, it was a land and air attack combined, because Rabbi Akiva is, is trying to maintain the sense of these were gangs, this was a tyrovis, this was a mixture and even an unnatural mixture. And Rav Shem, and Rav Shem ben Lakish doesn't necessarily say like it'd be Akiva, that it was aerial as well as land-based, but just there were, even if they were all land-based, again, as I said before, it's just unnatural for all of these animals, for all these beasts, for all these wild animals to attack all at once. Why? Why was it Arov? Why is this the name of the Maka? Why is the unnatural ganging up of beasts so important? Well, it's always... It reminded the Egyptians and, and, the, and the Jewish people to a degree, because this is really the first Makkah 
in which explicitly the Jews were spared. Part of the description of the plague of Arov is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will delineate will delimit, will create boundaries between Goshen and other areas, and the wild beasts did not enter Goshen. But it was important for everyone to detect this as supernatural, as a miracle. I mean, beasts always, from time to time, invade human civilization, human areas. What made this supernatural? It's clear that turning water into blood was supernatural. Raising frogs by the millions, supernatural. Kenim covering the entire earth of Egypt, supernatural. But if a, a lion attacks, or even a herd of lions that could have been imputed just to some, you know, lioness and her cubs trying to, to find food, to, to locate sources of nutrition. But once it was all the predators together, then all of a sudden it was seen as supernatural. But there's something more. There's something more. And this is something that Shem bin Lakish in the Medrash tries to emphasize. This was payback um, for the Egyptian ganging up against the Jewish people. And Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish's language, Atem Asisem Hamonim Hamonim. You created groups and groups to gang up against the Jewish people. Well, this was an accusation, an indictment of the Egyptians. So as retribution, there will be gangs of beasts. Now, part of what Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish means is it wasn't just that the Egyptians ganged up against the Jewish people, but their ganging up was also an allotment, an assortment of groups which wouldn't naturally have had much alliance or much in common. And throughout history, we sense, in, in human history in general, and certainly in, in Jewish history, in the history of Jewish discrimination, that hate and genocide creates very strange bedfellows. Very often you have people that have very little in common. They may even be political enemies, but they're united by their hatred of the other, they're united by their persecution of the other. And sadly enough, it's true in general about human nature. It was also true throughout history when anti-Semitism became a, a, a program, an agenda to unite people, whether it was in the Holocaust, whether it was in the Crusades. We can detect some of it in, in the current form of anti-Semitism, the, the, the Arab opposition to our presence in, in Israel. And, and we've seen how even internally Arab Countries can't contain political or maintain political stability, even internally, let alone between themselves. But when it comes to Israel, the Arab League somehow discovers their own solidarity of purpose and unity. It seems as if there was a similar phenomenon which occurred in Mitzrayim. It's not that explicit, but if we look carefully at the Pesukim in the beginning of Shemos, a new king arises, so all of a sudden there's a political change it's unclear as to whether it was a new king or an old king who had to reconstitute and recalibrate his laws. It's not clear what Melachandash is. But somehow this new king doesn't possess absolute authority to impose his decrees upon his people and to discriminate or persecute the Jewish people. He has to rally support. He says, Hava nishak malak. He turns to his would-be allies and he invites them. Hava nishak malak. Why don't we conspire against the Jewish people? Because they'll join our enemies, they'll form a fifth column. So he's obviously speaking to people who wouldn't naturally be in league with his plan for the Jews, and he has to convince them. Let's try to manipulate the Jewish people, let's try to preempt their plans. And he turns to his people. He's talking to his people. So there obviously are constituencies in this monarchy, despite the rule of Paro, who are not naturally aligned with Paro, 
They won't naturally listen to every decree, but he has to convince them, he has to persuade them, he has to sell them conspiracy, or the conspiracy theories about the Jews. And somehow, the plan to subjugate and persecute the Jews unites them. And all of a sudden, everyone joins the league, from the midwives to the announcement after he tells the midwives to kill the babies, and he makes a national announcement. And many of you shown him have pointed out that maybe he didn't have the authority to make that national announcement in the get-go, and he had to conspire secretly with the midwives just to kill Jewish boys who were born. And then, once he gained traction by conspiring with the midwives, then he could make the announcement to the overall public. But one thing is clear, that the Egyptians ganged up against the Jewish people. There were different sectors and segments of Egyptian society. Um, there's actually a very interesting medrash in which Paro consults with others. He consults with Bilam, actually. He consults with Eov about how to solve the Jewish problem. What, how can we find, in our modern terminology, a final solution for the Jewish problem? Um, it's very clear that there are different constituencies playing roles in the subjugation, whether it's the various noblemen, the Sarim of Paro, the Avadim of Paro, the Khartoumim of Paro. And these people don't necessarily share the same political national agenda, but they're together, they're mischakein, they conspire against the Jewish people, have and they're ganging up against the Jewish people, even though they don't share necessarily the same national program, same national agenda. And this is part of the payback Avarov, if you ganged up against my people, I will send gangs of animals to tear apart your society, which is why in the Psukim, in Arov, it's very clear, Hashem, the warning is Hashem will send Arov Becha to afflict you, Be'avdecha, your slaves, Uviamecha, and your, your, your nation, um, what's, what's the Pasuk? Uviamecha, Uvatecha. There's a very clear delineation that the Arav will affect you, your slaves, your people, and your homes, your families, your local communities. Because there were different layers to the Egyptian society. Those layers may have been at odds with each other in general issues, but when it came to conspiring against the Jewish people, let's join together, let's create a league, let's find that common purpose that unites us as unnatural allies. And interestingly enough, as we'll trace the rest of the Makos, the Makos don't just punish the Egyptians for this ganging up, most prominently in the Makabarov, but it also starts to peel away at this bonding towards their hatred of Jewish people. And you see, as the Makos reach the conclusion, some of the Egyptians lose their hatred for the Jewish people. They fear God more quickly than Paro is able to. Already in Barad, we see some of the Egyptians fearing the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, bringing their animals inside so they won't be punished by Barad. Um, certainly in Makas Bacharos, we see some Egyptians who are quicker to rally to release the Jewish people, more open to accepting Moshe's authority, more acknowledging of HaKadosh Baruch Hu before Paro acknowledged. So the Arov is the start of a process, and it's not just putative to punish the Egyptian gangs, these unnatural gangs who ganged up against the Jewish people, but it's also... It, it, it addresses this unnatural alliance, and it breaks down the alliance, it breaks the allies, who are allied only in their hatred of Jews. So the Arav weren't just wild animals or wild beasts, but they were gangs of beasts, and again, unnatural gangs of beasts, because normally predators don't prey side by side. But there's another sub 
drama to or subplot to Makas um, Arov. The first three Makos, by and large, attacked what we would call, in our jargon, Egyptian technology. Part of it was religious, theological, to try to debunk the Nile River as a source of religious deification. But part of it was also attacking the Nile as the source of Egyptian technology. The Nile provided ready and plenty sources of water. Egyptians were masters at irrigation, at drawing the water into the Aros, the Aros, the Agamim, the Mikvimayim. And it's very clear that these Makos are attacking this infrastructure of irrigation and water supply. And the Kinim, as I mentioned in the previous year, attacked the construction industry, and the Egyptians were known for their prowess and their their talents in construction in pyramids and cities and towns. That's one layer of human experience which is brought to its knees, which is defeated in the first three makos, human technology. At this stage, as we transition to the next group of makos, and as I mentioned earlier, Arov begins a new group, a very different part of human experience is under siege, is under attack. Even if humans can't progress and advance and discover and invent and develop their technology and change their world and improve their existence, and that's already been peeled away and defeated, they still have the ability to live together as human beings in cities and towns and nations and states. And that's something which is very, very unique to human beings. Animals don't live in such large numbers. They live in herds. They live in prides. They live in teams. To a degree, a little bit more in the marine world, but by and large, you don't have animals, or certainly in a cognitive way, living together, defending each other. There is a bit of a sense of a herd mentality where animals can gather safety and generate safety by being in a herd, but certainly you don't have the numbers and, and the millions that human beings are able. City life, human beings have this ability to live together. When they live together, one of the benefits they receive and one of the prerequisites for living together is they establish a clear boundary between what we would call civilization and the jungle. Or else we couldn't live together because we'd just constantly be preyed upon by wild animals and wild beasts. And to a degree, it's not just that human beings succeed in creating boundaries between the city and the jungle, and because they create those boundaries, they're able to form a stable city. But in many ways, the fact that they live together scares off the animals. Large numbers of human beings are able to create a, a sense of presence. of One human being in the forest, animals won't will attack. When animals and beasts sense large conglomerations of human beings building cities, it's not just the animals sense it, but when human beings live together in cities, they're able to build more permanent structures, they're able to build walls, they're able to build fortresses, they're able to build more stable houses. Nomads who live on the countryside, they're not going to invest that much time or resources in building a wall just to protect one family, or building a wall on a mountain, which they will move off of after a month of grazing. So the notion of creating city life gives stability. It's very human, it's unique to the human kind, of course, and one of the prerequisites, as well as one of the benefits of living together in large clusters, is creating boundaries between the city and the jungle. When these animals invade, they are blurring, they are erasing, they are eliminating these boundaries. The jungle has now entered the city. 
The homes are no longer safe, and that's why the emphasis throughout this section is about the homes, that the animals invaded the homes, bivotecha. They entered the people, they entered the cities, and they entered the homes. And this was the warning which Moshe gave, Vayas Hashem Kain, and then when it happened in Pasachaf, Vayavo Arov Kaved Besa Paro, Besa, Besa Vadav, they entered the homes of the Egyptians, and all lines between humans and the city and the jungle were obliterated, were destroyed. So this maka, and I'll talk about this a little bit in Dever and in Shrin, because contagious diseases also also unravel city life. If anything, city life is more vulnerability to contagion and outbreaks and venereal diseases and contagious diseases. So Dever and Shrin are further attempts to break down their ability to live in this group. They no longer have their technology. The Nile has been turned into a sewer and the construction industry has ground to a halt, but at least they're living as a people. And now Kodesh Baruch Hu is breaking down city life in Egypt. I don't want to just mean city life, but the ability for human beings to live together as one group. And to a degree, it takes us back to an earlier point in Tanakh. When Noah departs from the Teva, Hashem issues a few mitzvahs and then gives him a, a new found power. Hashem tells him that now human beings will rule over the animal kingdom. Their fear will be imposed in the animal kingdom. So that's a benefit which Noah was given that previous generations hadn't enjoyed. They were more subject and victimized by these wild beasts, perhaps even beasts that we don't know of, save through archaeology, the, the dinosaur era, which obviously isn't millions and millions of years old. The world is only 5,772 years old, but certainly archaeology suggests there were types of predators that you know we can only dream of, imagine, see movies about. So now Noah is given control over this world, but he's also warned very, very carefully about murder, specifically about murder. Now there's a connection between the two. For human beings to live together, they can't murder each other, they can't abuse each other. And that's part of the reason why human beings can live together, because they are able to establish sophisticated, to one degree or another, forms of governance which protect each other's rights, which prevent abuse, which prevent murder. And not just murder, but other forms of abuse. A healthy, just, civil, moral society, even if you're not a religious person, it's just absolutely necessary for, for social survival, for personal survival, a social contract. So when a Kodesh Baruch Hu gives Noah these two, one mitzvah and one newfound power, it's a tandem, it's a package. If you form a society and you avoid murdering each other or worse, then you'll be able to live together. When you live together, you'll have a city. When you live together in a city, of course, you will impose your will upon the surrounding jungle, upon the surrounding... You won't live like wild beasts, and you'll be able to withstand uh, the, 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 the impact of the jungle, because animals, just wild beasts, know not to invade instinctively. They don't invade large uh, areas of human, uh, human civilization. And it's a very striking contrast to Cain, because remember, Cain is a murderer. And because Cain is a murderer, his punishment, quote-unquote, is to live alone. But it's not really a punishment, it's a consequence. If you're a murderer, you can't live in a society. You can't, in our context, you'd have to be in prison, but that's punitive, it's penal. But in that context, it wasn't just penal, but you're not someone who's fit to, to live as part of civilization. And in Cain's 
first concern when HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells him that he's doomed, that he's condemned to wander the earth as a solitary nomad, he's worried about the animals, he's worried about the beasts. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to implant some sign on his forehead to scare off the beasts. But this is a very, very real contrast in many ways to Noah. Cain lives alone. Cain isn't part of a city. He isn't fit to be part of a city. And as a consequence, he's vulnerable, susceptible to the attacks of wild beasts which roam the wilderness. Noah is told, build a city, respect people's rights, don't murder them, don't abuse them, you'll form a city, and, and of course your will will be imposed on the wild beasts. All of a sudden, a few hundred years later, I mean, from Noah's time, a thousand plus years later, all of a sudden, um, in Mitzrayim, they've returned to Cain. They, they're, they're murderers. They've subjugated other human beings. There's a subclass of slaves that aren't given rights. And Makas Arov should be seen, not just as a punishment for Makarish Baruch Hu, but it should be seen as a consequence. Well, you don't, you're not building a stable and just society. You're building a society of abuse, of persecution, of murder. That society will fall. That society will wilt under the weight of its own abuse. And once that society and that city will wilt, you will be exposed to the ravages of, of wild beasts. You won't have that defensive, uh, protective shell of living with other human beings. So the Arav is almost like foreboding. It's forecasting what will ultimately happen if a society can't live in just ethical posture. So the, these are really the two subplots of Makas Arav. Every child has a primal fear of wild animals. No one has to explain Arav. And yet, the Maka is called Arav. Because it wasn't just wild animals, but unnatural assortments of wild animals who don't normally prey, don't normally attack in tandem, in unison. And here they did, and it proved that it was supernatural, but more importantly, it reminded the Egyptians and the Jews that if people uh, group together unnaturally because of one common hatred of the other, and particularly the hatred of Jewish people, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu will intercede, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will break those unnatural bonds, and this starts to break those bonds, and there was a metaphor, the wild animals, as Rishon ben Lakish says in the Medrash, Atem asu hamonim hamonim, you ganged up against my people, Paro and his servants, and his population, and his noblemen, and his advisors, and his chartumim, and Paro had to convince them, and plead with them, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends these gangs of animals. Second of all, these animals blurred, erased, eradicated the boundary between civilization and the jungle. And this is part of a three-part process to eliminate Egyptian city life. And it was punishment, but also a foreboding that if you were going to murder Jews, if you were going to persecute the other, then your city will fold in. And when human beings don't live with other human beings in respect, then first of all, they're exposed to the ravages of the jungle. And of course, their own society becomes a jungle.